0: This podcast is sponsored by Mississippi Land Bank. Visit them online at mslandbank.com. Trust me on this. They're the kind of folks that you want to do business with. So any kind of land need, buying, selling, or just looking for it, you're thinking about building that dream home or maybe it's farmland or recreational property, hunting, fishing, all of that and more, make sure you do business with the folks at Mississippi Land Bank at the branch office nearest you. You'll be glad you did. And if you don't know who they are, where they are, just look them up online mslandbank.com and also brought to you by jubilation's cheesecake in west point we're proud of them we're really proud of their cheesecake we've eaten it in there before when we've uh, recorded the podcast but you need to stop in if you're ever headed to the game with the new dude and you drive through west point stop in jubilation's cheesecake it's right on highway 45 right there kind of before you get down there to that mossy oak uh, intersection if you're headed south and stop in. They've got the coffee house. Uh, they have bre- breakfast, lunch, things that are made from scratch for lunch. But obviously all the sweet stuff, too, including cheesecake. And if you're in there at the right time, you can actually look through the window and watch them being made at the cheesecake plants. So if you have kids, they'll love seeing that as well. So stop in. Jubilation's Cheesecake in West Point. Brett Hudson, his, his fingers are still smoking after... Finishing off and posting the Jordan Westberg piece this morning at uh, mattwhitemedia.com. That was a great story,
1: Brett. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's why my fingers are hurting. I could <laughs> I could feel something in in these knuckles. I thought it was old age, but I'm I'm glad it's just uh, I'm glad it's just working this keyboard for for a couple hours. No, yeah. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. It was. Uh, it was a lot of fun. The the Westberg family, uh, Paul and Christine Jordan's parents are are just fantastic people. And uh, Mississippi State fans tend to meet these player families along the way because you know these player families like to have a good time out there in the uh, in the outfield and have some good food, have some good times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You see. Player parents out there all the time. So if anyone happens to run into them, or you know someone from another lounge that knows them, make sure you uh, you meet them and entertain them. They're they're wonderful people. And and Jordan, the apple didn't fall far from from both of those trees. Uh, but it, it's just a fun story because you know, and, and this is something that didn't quite make the story, but we can quickly uh, address it here. I talked to John Cohen for this story, as you saw, uh, for those of you that have read it. And we talked about for a couple of minutes how atypical something like this is because baseball recruiting is among the more in advance uh, recruiting cycles of sports in the NCAA. And what I mean by that is often you're getting guys committed in – the summer after their sophomore year. I mean, you're getting really early recru- recruitments and really early commitments in baseball, at least you have in, in recent times. I know the NCAA has changed the recruiting calendar a little bit for, for baseball to try to push it back, but still, you get pretty early recruitments in, in baseball. For So for someone like Jordan to go into his final summer uh, of high school before his senior season, right. before his senior year, and still be kind of mulling over options to the point that he is able to take a last-second visit to an SEC school. That's pretty rare in and of itself. It's even more rare that he's in a situation where he's really considering Mississippi State and and taking a real serious look at it. And just the fact that he was in Atlanta that weekend and the schedule all worked out the way it did so that he could make that quick drive to, to Starkville and clearly – as the numbers in the story suggest, Mississippi State is pretty pleased yeah. that that was that was the case. it was a, it was a wild story. suggests everybody read that. It was a a fun one to tell. Uh, so normally, I try to think up of something like creative or at least an entertaining bit to ease into these shows. But we have so much to get into, which frankly, I wasn't expecting. That's why I yeah. put out the request for uh, questions on Twitter. But then a couple hours later, we had some breaking news, yours truly, with the info. We'll get to that in a second. So now we have legitimate news discuss- to discuss on top of Twitter questions and, oh, you know, this little thing such as a top 15 series on the road coming yeah. up. So I think we need to dive into this thing, Matt. What do you say? Okay,
0: I agree. So um, why don't we go this order? Uh, let's do breaking news because that's kind of leads you right into the talk about this weekend series that – yeah, uh, you broke yesterday. And then right after that, I'll tee you up on some of the things that, um, you know, the, the topics that people send into you, I'll just tee them up to you. And then you can kind of tell me what your research shows, um, okay. on those. So, so first up, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you probably are following state baseball pretty religiously, but who knows you could have been on vacation, could have been away, didn't see it. Brett, Broke some news on Wednesday when he found out from sources, and then it was later confirmed by the team that the pitching rotation is going to be a little different than what we've seen. You've got a Thursday, Friday, Saturday series. So, what tell us the news, Brett?
1: Yeah, so it's going to be Keegan James on Thursday night, Ethan Small on Friday night, and JT Ginn uh, Saturday afternoon. It's a departure from the usual of the last few weeks, which has been small again and Peyton Plumley, in that order. Uh, so Keegan James will get the Thursday start six o'clock and I'm going to give you these dates and times realize this is baseball. It's weather dependent. Yeah. Thursday, six o'clock sec network, Friday, six 35 PM sec network plus Saturday, two o'clock sec network. So two of the three games scheduled for, for big time TV. Um, so I have two things on on this. The first is is a personal thing and I, so I'll make it quick, but boy, was I glad that state went ahead and announced this thing because see when you break news in this industry where most of the time the involved parties will eventually fess up to the facts, especially yeah. in situations as mundane as starting pitching, you live in dread until the entity confirms what you've reported because weird things happen, man, like like Matt. Let's pretend we live in a universe in which what I eat for lunch is a newsworthy thing, okay? <laughs> if I hit you up and say, hey, I'm going to nukes for lunch today. You want to come? You'll say, no, I got something going on. But you have that scoop, so you report it, right? Yeah. yeah. Now what happens if I'm in the car heading for nukes? I pass Sonic, and I say, man, Sonic sounds awesome. So I roll up in there yeah. instead. Then your uh. completely factual report suddenly becomes wrong because something weird happened happened
0: after you reported it yes and
1: in this situation no matter how confident you are of which i was incredibly confident i wouldn't have reported it if i wasn't you just never know man and i I fully expected to live in this dread until the sec releases its (laughs) pitching matchups which is generally thursday sometime in between 10 and noon giving me a full 24 hours of hating myself but state was nice enough to put out its series preview, its game notes, and all that a few hours later, confirming the rotation. So I appreciate that. Shouts to Greg Campbell and Austin Coates for all they do for us jokesters in the media. But now to my thoughts on the actual pitching. Uh, once I put it out there and then once it got confirmed by Mississippi State, naturally the biggest question was why? Why state would do this after a starting pitching after starting pitching was so awesome last weekend here were those numbers last weekend by the way. Seventeen to third innings, eight hits and five walks for a zero point seven five zero whip, twenty-three strikeouts, two earned runs allowed for an ERA of one point oh four. That's what you got out of starting pitching last weekend. Wow. Well you would change that up if you want to keep Ethan Small and JT Gin on their usual rest, right? Because they're going from a Friday, Saturday, Sunday to a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's one fewer Day of rest. If you were to keep the same order, so if you are set on keeping Ethan Small and J T. again on their usual rest, uh, which I have a point I want to get to on that in a second, if you're set on that idea, you have to remember that you would be asking Peyton Plumley to take the mound on a 12th day on that Thursday, having already thrown 147 pitches in the previous 11, and then asking him to go for bulk now. I'm sure Peyton Plumley would rather take a Mike Tyson uppercut to the jaw than miss a start the way he's pitching right now. Yeah, But my bet is he's back in the starting rotation when State goes to Ole Miss on its usual Friday, Saturday, Sunday schedule. That Those were my thoughts on the starting pitching deal. That's why you're seeing Keegan James. And that's why you're seeing him on Thursday. I don't think it will last long. I think Peyton will have that Sunday start in Oxford uh, about – what about 10 days from when we're recording this? Yeah, right now. What do you think? I agree with you. That's what it looks like
0: to me. I mean, you pitched him twice last week, you're turning around on a short week this week. You can't run him back out there, you know, on Thursday. And, you know, Brett, I just think that if Keegan, I'm sorry, that if Ethan Small goes out there tonight, if instead of Friday, Saturday normal rotation, they just go and move them all up a day. Then I think the Saturday game we might see Peyton Plumley, you know. Um, I agree, but because of small on f- staying on a Friday normal week, which makes a lot of sense. Um, they're not going to rush up Peyton in this one, so yeah, I agree with you. I think what that's what we'll see is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Oxford will be small again. Plumley, uh, I'm led to believe that anyway. Great job on getting the info and putting it out there. Hey, what a what a stage for keegan james man you know if you ever needed an example of why as a player you know you start the year as a third starter everything gets shuffled around and moved around you still have a role you got to keep your head in the game because your team needs you if there was ever an example of of why you have to do that now you're on the road at a top 15 team it's the only top 25 baseball game in the country and it is nationally televised on the SEC network. And you're going up against their guy. <laughs> Here, Here's the ball, Keegan. You know, I mean, what a stage for Keegan James tonight. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's huge. It's his first SEC star since March 24th. Um, and he actually had some pretty strong outings when he was a, a bullpen guy. Um, he took... Three innings in a Tennessee game, uh, gave up one hit uh, and one run in those three innings. Had a good inning and two-third outing against Alabama. Struggled against Arkansas, but frankly, everyone did. Throw that weekend out completely and then pitched a a hitless two-thirds of an inning in the Governor's Cup game, only allowed a walk. Uh, So he's had moments of being productive out of the bullpen. Uh, The the knock on him, and we talked about this back in – in March, when State went from Keegan James to TBA at the end of at the end of March, who eventually transitioned to Peyton Plumley, uh, the only problem with him was he wasn't lasting uh, very long. His longest starts were five innings, and he only did that twice. Yeah. Um, so that was that was the problem with with Keegan. Now a lot of that is due to walks. I mean, if you look at he had multiple walks in let's see four of the six starts. Uh-huh. He made, including four walks against Southern Miss. Um, so if he's if he's found a way to iron that out, if he's able to give State a sixth inning against Texas A&M, frankly, I think you would call that a win with the way the bullpen is right now, the way it's pitching right now and how deep it is. If you're able to get six innings out of Keegan James and still have a chance to win that Thursday game yeah. going into yeah. the top of the seventh, I think Keegan James will have will have done his job, and and I'll I'll do little but praise him for for that. Because as you mentioned, this is a huge moment for him, not only in any context, right? Getting a, a Thursday night start on SEC Network on the road—that's a huge moment for pretty much any pitcher, no matter how many times you've been in this situation. But for Keegan to do it in this season, the way it has gone for him to this point to start as that Sunday starter and get moved to the bullpen and then be thrown into this situation Uh, for him to deliver that kind of a performance in, in this spot that would, that would earn the respect of the fan base, or at least it should, in my opinion.
0: No doubt. No doubt about it. All right. And so game one at Texas uh, A&M, it looks like, is it a seven or a 6 PM central time start? It's a six o'clock. Okay. So six o'clock central start and televised on the SEC Network here on Thursday night.
1: So I have one more note on on this whole Keegan James thing. Um, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, I noticed that Chris Lamona seems to be more hesitant with guys on this schedule than his predecessors. Previously, when the team would go from a Friday-Saturday-Sunday to a Thursday-Friday-Saturday, there wasn't even a consideration. It was, we're using the same guys, and we'll have to watch them since they're off their usual schedule. But Lamona's in the past has been a little slow to commit to the usual rotation, or in this case, just outright changed it. Now, we are in a new era of pitching management and workload management, so maybe this is something that's going to become more common in college baseball in years to come, or maybe this is just a Lamonis idiosyncrasy. We don't really have enough of a book on him as state's coach to make that determination, but I think it'll be interesting to follow as his tenure continues, because he's certainly going to be in this situation plenty as long as he's in Starkville.
0: I agree. It's really good stuff. Good stuff. Brett, all right, so let's jump over to some of this Twitter stuff. You put a feeler out there. You got a bunch of responses, and we kind of sift through, and some of the better ones that led you to some real down and dirty digging research work. Uh, So I'm kind of interested. And the first one here was about the fact that the bullpen is leaning heavily on newcomers. And, yeah, and finding that interesting. What did you find on that?
1: Yeah, to, uh, the, he had two questions. He's come from tob at reo brian three on on Twitter. He had two questions. Um, we'll, we'll get to the bullpen one on newcomers in a second. He had one more in there. Okay, um, let's see. Uh,
0: Mangum, you're gonna read it to you? yeah. So so the other question? No, was no, about
1: the uh, the Riley Self one. Oh, okay. All right, the Riley Self one. Uh, let's start with that one. Basically, hoping he rounds into form in the postseason. Here's what I can say on Riley self. He broke a really small bone in his left wrist. That's his glove hand. And there are plans to have him wear a stint on it that can be worn inside of his glove, So he's not as exposed to re-injury when he does return. Frankly, he's lucky something inspired him to use his left hand to catch his fall and not his right. Because if this injury were in his pitching hand, there's a chance he's done for the year. But TOB does bring up a good point. In that it's bad timing for him because we really he really had it coming together. His his velo was an issue in the first six weeks of the season, but it was starting to come back, and the confidence was on the rise. The good news is he's able to throw bullpens with some help, given that cast on his hand. It's not a true bullpen as in the the interplay between pitcher and catcher. He's just lucky all the way around that this injury should allow him to stay in form while he recovers until he comes back, likely for that Ole Miss series.
0: H- how did he break it?
1: He fell down the staircase at his apartment building. Yeah. Well, that's tough.
0: Hey, I was – it's interesting. Yesterday I was in Grenada, and, you know, I guess Riley didn't finish high school there but grew up in and around Grenada, and I think at one time as a younger guy I was going to Grenada High School. At least that's according to the person I was talking to who's a former college baseball player who's living and working there in Grenada now. And this guy that I talked to apparently knew Riley's dad really well. I think they played baseball together coming up. Okay. And uh, so this guy I'm talking to, who was a former uh, Juco baseball player himself, said that he used to tell Riley's dad all the time, man, look, your kid is tall for his age. He's a good athlete and he's got this great arm. He, he, he said, Riley could pick up a football in like the 8th and ninth grade and throw the thing 60 yards, you know. He had this really powerful arm throwing a football. He said, and I kept telling his dad, look, he needs to be playing quarterback on a football team. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to turn him into a quarterback. Take him to quarterback camps. He's tall. He's big. He's got this powerful arm, you know. And I think his point was he was telling him he's going to have a chance to be a really like highly recruited, get his college paid for quarterback, and he was telling him look pitchers who throw 90 92 are a dime a dozen nowadays that's not even unusual you know and if he's going to pitch he's got to do something different than just you know pitch it normal and and so we know the rest of the story Riley chose baseball obviously and and has been outstanding and has developed this thing where he doesn't try to overpower anybody with velocity it's all about movement But the velocity is part of it, that movement paired with throwing it up there, 88-89 as opposed to 83-84. I just thought it was interesting. You had this question, and there I am yesterday talking to a guy who's telling me that years ago he tried to encourage Riley's dad to turn him into a quarterback. Felt like he had the ability and the size to do it, you know, but Riley just loved baseball.
1: Yeah, he he did. And Now to to get to the the question you were getting into about the bullpen. Uh, So TOB's more interesting thought was, He said the bullpen has leaned heavily on newcomers. He points out that Cole Gordon is there, but the rest haven't really pitched much in previous years or just weren't there at all. And you know me. When I hear something like that, I'm going to get the data. And here it is. State's bullpen has taken 202 thirds innings. 81 of them have been thrown by guys in their debut season. That's 40.3% of their bullpen innings. If you expand it to guys – who have thrown 15 or fewer innings as Bulldogs. And basically what I'm doing here is including Jared Lee Belt for somewhat obvious reasons. Yeah. It climbs up to 56.9% of bullpen innings taken by guys who have no inter- have no history of contributing much to Mississippi State. Tristan Barlow did pitch a good bit in 2017 and Cale Bro in 2016, which is why I set the limit where I did to not include them in a general race of new contributors to the team. So the point of all of this is 56.9% of bullpen innings are being handled by guys that are not previously made earnest contributions to the team. Now, as to whether that's atypical, a study of the very recent past at Mississippi State showed this can fluctuate wildly year to year, and it makes sense that it would hold over a, a large sample. Last year, in 2018, it was down to 47%. But that comes with a certain caveat that almost all of those innings were taken by the two grad transfers, Zach Neff and JP France. So without those two guys, there's no telling what the bullpen innings are are distributed as. Then in 2017, it was literally almost all of the bullpen innings. You may remember that team was brutalized by Tommy John surgery and Ryan Sear being dismissed from the team. So they had to go new pieces in the bullpen uh, basically for all of them. And then in 2016, it was back down to around 67% of of bullpen. innings. so my verdict is this is something that isn't atypical as a given. It's just something that happens from time to time. And and relative to this exact bullpen, the 2019 bullpen, I think roster construction is the reason for this one. Because I mentioned the two grad transfers taking so many bullpen innings. Thus, a lot of bullpen innings were up for grabs. And then you look at it and State brought in nine pitchers this year compared to eight returning pitchers that could have ended up in the bullpen because there was no world in which Ethan Small ended up in the bullpen uh, this year. So I think that had a bigger impact on why the bullpen is the way it is uh, other than than anything else. But I did think it was interesting that it it can be atypical that a bullpen relies this much on on new arms, but it's not necessarily a given. And I I think it's more of a year-by-year deal than, than anything else. Yeah. Okay,
0: so uh, what direction you want to go next? You want to go Mangum next? Yeah, let's go Mangum. All right. So, and and it was about uh, the fact that you know he's up there on that hits list nationally, the all-time NCAA list. I mean, he's up there and climbing. Yeah. And somebody, I guess, remembered that back in the day, some of the older players played a lot more games. Apparently, they did. So, what'd you find out?
1: Yeah, this comes from Arthur247A, and he points out that Mangum is tied for 12th in NCAA career hits. And he wants to know when the 56-game schedule became active and how many of the players ahead of Jake Mangum played prior to that limit. So let's establish the baseline. Jake has 355 career hits in 240 games. 355 hits in 240 games is literally the exact career of one of the guys he's currently tied for 12th in NCAA history with, Chris Campbell of College of Charleston. The other is Sonny Mead of the Citadel, who got his 355 hits in seven fewer games, 233. But both of their careers were recent, Sonny Mead from 06 to 09 and Chris Campbell from 04 to 07. I asked Teddy Cahill of Baseball America, and he told me the 56-game schedule was put in place in 1992. Of the 11 guys currently ahead of him, On the NCAA career hits list, five of them played their entire careers before 1992, including the all-time hits leader, Phil Stevenson of Wichita State. From 1979 to 1982, he had 418 hits. Since this is a matter of opportunity, let's go ahead and lay it all out for, for Jake. Jake has played 240 career games. Let's give him the maximum. All 11 regular season games, five in Hoover, four in a regional, three in a Super, four to get to the championship series, and three in the championship series in Omaha. That would put him at 270 career games. Remember the number, 270. There are five guys ahead of Jake that have more career gains than that, and all five of them are in the top six in NCAA history. This team, doing what it should do postseason-wise, should give Jake plenty of opportunity to climb as high as third, currently 385 by Notre Dame's Steve Stanley. But the game number is likely to keep Jake out of that race for the 418 number set by Phil Stevenson, with a whopping 288 games compared to that rough max of 270 for Jake Mangum. Which, by the way, Phil Stevenson's senior year, he played 73 regular season games. Good, grief. and then they went to Omaha. Can you believe that?
0: Good grief! So 73 in the regular season, and then you- and then went to Omaha. Well, and and so again. If he was late seventies, early eighties, though, what was the structure of the postseason? It wasn't regional, super regional Omaha, was it?
1: No, it was conference tournament regional Omaha. So I yeah. think okay. I think his senior year actually had the game by game log up not that long ago. I think he ended up playing like something in the ballpark of fifteen postseason games. Yeah. Maybe a little bit less than that, maybe closer to twelve, if you include the conference tournament. But yeah, still seventy three regular season games.
0: Wow good grief. Yeah, it's a big difference. <laughs> it's it's a lot. <laughs> so, what'll happen is wherever Jake finishes on the list, we'll be able to go in there then and get out the calculator and do the math and go, "Okay, what about hits per game?" you know. Yep. And you know, if if he finishes in that 4th, 5th, 4th, 3rd spot somewhere in there, it's going to be pretty easy to look up there and probably go ahead and say that, you know, he's going to have more hits per game than anybody ahead of him. So
1: Yeah, um, that that'll be something I'll do at the end of the season. I'll have to I'll have to break out the hits per yeah. game metric relative to those those career hits leaders and see where he yeah. where he stands. Yeah. Um okay. want to do one more on Jake while we're while we're on this subject? Please. Uh so this comes from Kevin Stewart which number 15 had the biggest impact on Mississippi State, Dak Prescott or Jake Mangum? <laughs> His note is that he loves what Dak did, elevating the, the football program, but what Jake's done for four coaches in four years is incredible, especially if he ends up being part of back-to-back Omaha teams. How do you, how do you tackle that one, Matt? Well, I
0: first want to throw in the um, fly and the ointment just for conversation's sake. Is that number 15 kicker Brian Hazelwood hit the kick that effectively clinched the Western Division championship for the 98 football team and sent us to the SEC title game in Atlanta? Well, Uh, I I think we have our answer. Okay. Well, but, (laughs) but, you know, the word in the question is impact, right? Like who had the bigger impact? Yes. And, um, see, and I could argue, You know, Hazelwood hit the kick, sent us to the championship game effectively. But we say impact, it had an impact, but, man, that was 98. And by 2001, the football program had had just fallen flat. So if we added the word lasting impact, now we're on to a different conversation because then I would probably – it's hard to get away from Dak. You know, what – Yes, and in a football program there's so many things that go into it. It's not just one guy. One guy always gets the attention. But I think um what Dak and that team, you know, the exposure, it came along at the perfect time, Brett. It's not like Dak came along in two thousand five and led the team to some prominence then, because back then you didn't even watch games in H D. It was still S D. There was no SEC network. You know, yeah. I didn't even have Twitter in 2005, you know. Uh, so by 2014, the wall-to-wall coverage across the country, the growth of the sport, the 24-hour coverage on the SEC network. It's a very good point. And, and, and so it just snowballed into this uh, marketing branding opportunity for the entire school that, frankly, the entire school had never seen before. Mm-hmm. And it's it's still you still are experiencing the residual effect of that five years later.
1: I I agree. I think I think you and I kind of fall on the on the same path here, but I'm going to take it a step further. So if if we're answering his question as it's written, which was bigger impact on Mississippi State, I think it's Dak because Dak Dak and the teams that he was a part of changed the calculus for what is possible for Mississippi State football, it opened up a new stratosphere of success. And with a new stratosphere of football success in the Southeast in 2019, means a new stratosphere of money. And money opens up everything. That's right. For collegiate athletic programs. That's why you see college coaches sacrificing everything to get just any uh, Power 5 job because they think the access to Uh, possibilities from group of five to power five is that significant. They're willing to take a bad power five job over a good group of five job. And, and Dak uh, uh, kind of changing that calculus for the football program has a bigger impact on Mississippi state in that regard. But if we're, if we change the question slightly as, as uh, Kevin kind of did towards the end of his question to most impressive, just by on field exploits and what they did on the field, I, I think it's Jake. I really do. Yeah, I, I think no doubt. I mean, in
0: terms of where he, where his name is going to appear in the history of the sport, not only at state but nationally, Mangum, Mangum's got some trophies on the mantle that Dak doesn't have, and that's just all. Yep. I mean, that's just a fact. Um, but, but again. The key word here, Brett, it's semantics, is impact. Because, and I can't get away from Dak because, again, I, I'll make a correlation. It continues with Dak. It didn't end when Dak graduated. What happened? He goes and wins rookie of the year as a quarterback of the dang Dallas Cowboys. You know, I got, and that's different. Being the quarterback of the Cowboys is different than being the quarterback of the Falcons. It's different. I got news for you. It's different than being the quarterback of the Saints. (laughs) Everybody nationally, (laughs) wall-to-wall, I remember the national folks like Cowherd and all, you know, they mentioned it. We all have mentioned it, how quarterback of the Cowboys is kind of like being the shortstop for the Yankees, okay? So what Dak did is would be like Jake, not only doing this in his career, but right after college, You know, getting drafted by the Yankees and making his major league debut in center field for the Yankees, like as a rookie or a second year player, and then like stepping up to the plate and driving in two runs in the playoffs or something. You know that I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the equivalent in in baseball. Jake may do all that, he may do all that, but I think in terms of impact, you're still in a position, and I bet Jake would admit it. You're still in a position where Dak. Has the greatest impact, and Mangum's trying to track him down.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, to summarize it for for me, and I think you agree. If we're going by impact on Mississippi State University, I think there's a, a statistically significant margin between Dak Prescott and Jake Mangum. But if we're talking about how impressive the on-field career is, I think there's a statistically significant gap between Jake Mangum and Dak Prescott. I think you're right. I think I I, I, I would agree with that. Certainly. So we've got, we still have to get to that Texas A&M series. We'll get to it momentarily, but we've got, we've got one more question that we can really dive into, but there are a couple that I can put to bed kind of quickly. So last one, uh, that I can kind of this is the last one that I can kind of answer with data, but I'm kind of answering it with a lack of data. LP Chowdog asks if we have enough data to prove balls go further with the left field loss in place. The short answer is no, because this year balls are going further off these bats in general just because these hitters are better. Yeah. So we would have to have data from the 2015 and 16 and 17 seasons for instance, and since college baseball is light years behind Major League Baseball in terms of publicly available data, we're not quite there yet. That's the short answer to that question. Maybe in, in a couple of years and with more publicly available data, we can, we can answer that question. Now, before we go to the last question, I do want to shout out John Mooney, who asked for the best nine in program history, including the DH, the starting pitcher, and the bullpen. We'll do it one day, John, but that's a heck of an undertaking, and we've got a lot going on. In this epi- episode, Matt and I will tackle that topic eventually, but we don't have nearly enough time for that today, but I won't forget it, John. I, I promise we'll, we'll do it eventually. So the last one I really want to dive into comes from Adam Lindsay. He wants us to discuss Dustin Skelton's improvement, both behind the plate defensively and in the offensive numbers. Adam thinks he looks like a completely different dude and wonders how much credit goes to coach cheese, Kyle cheese, bro. Yeah. Uh, so for that note on catching, it's definitely Kyle Cheesebro. I wrote about that in the preseason, and Adam, hit me in the DMs. If you missed that story, I'll, I'll send it to you. But I really do think it's that simple. He's got a former catcher who is dedicated to teaching him the the art of catching, and and the improvement in that regard seems pretty, pretty obvious. Now, I do have a note on Skelton's improved hitting, but I want to hear from you first. What do you think of the new and improved Dustin Skelton?
0: Well, I mean, it, it, it kind of the numbers. In some ways, the numbers sort of speak for themselves, right? Um, yeah, it, it, and that's that's always the case in in any you know stats driven conversation. And and baseball is pretty much always a stats driven conversation. It seems like, but I mean, for Pete's sake, the guy last year hit two thirty eight, and now he's batting three fourteen. Way on deep here in the back end of the year. Excuse me, and had to get crazy
1: hot in June to get up to that two thirty eight.
0: Yeah, uh, right. To get up to it this year, he has nine home runs. He hit one all of last season. Like, like, try to figure that out. <laughs> the you know, and and at this point, it's like his. I mean, last year he had seven doubles on the whole season, so some of those doubles have turned into you know, goner, uh, and that kind of thing. But also the strikeout numbers, if you look at it uh, last year, let's see, he's sitting there at 28 strikeouts um, on the year. So it's not like he was just fanning all the time, even though some of us want to remember it that way. It's not. He's actually got more strikeouts at this point this year than he had last year. But what it so what that shows me is – He's just transitioned his approach, and it's working. So without trying to go like way too deep analytical, just look at it this way. The guy's hitting the ball harder more often. Therefore, it's going farther more often. But there are a few more swings and misses mixed in there.
1: What if I told you I had an explanation for why he's hitting the ball harder? Let's hear it. It, it, While while the train... I don't know if you can hear this while the train. <laughs> the train comes is really here, excited about this. about to. Uh, so it, run it me goes over. back to when he got hot last year at the end of the season, and never forget, Dustin Skelton was basically Mike Trout for one weekend in Tallahassee. Uh, I wrote about him hitting to the opposite field. Uh, uh-huh. Coach Gotro had him focus on the inside half of the baseball and making contact with it. So kind of think about seeing a pitch come in and focusing on the inside half of the baseball as you're trying to hit it. Yes, it makes him go the other way, but what it really does is it keeps his swing short and violent in the zone. I think a certain bit of that is still in him considering, remember his last home run, it went to the opposite field. It snuck over the right field wall uh, at duty noble. So it, it seems like there's a similar arc to him that there is in Westberg, which is mentioned in that story I posted earlier, this morning uh, where the confidence Dustin Skelton built at the end of last year has transitioned pretty seamlessly to this season. And the adjustment he made last year was attacking the inside half of the baseball, not only to spray things the other way and and see where you can find some empty grass, but also just to keep the swing short, keep the swing violent. I think that might help those strikeout numbers that, that you were mentioning earlier, but also it, it clearly helps him make consistent hard contact on the baseball. That's it.
0: I mean, a slugging percentage a year ago, of 320, and he's sitting there at 547 this year. And that, again, reflects the, the home run numbers. And, you know, the biggest difference, too, is last year they he didn't play as much because of a lot of those struggles at the plate. You know, Gilbert played a lot of games behind the plate last year. This year it's the Dustin Skelton show. You know, last year, all of last season, he drove in 13 runs. He's driven in 39 this year. Okay, so it makes total sense because when you watched Dustin play, I've said it. I think I even said it on one of the broadcasts. You know, Dustin Skelton in the past seemed like if a pitcher, a right-handed pitcher, Wanted to attack the outside corner of the plate with a breaking ball where it's going to catch the plate on its flight, but it's breaking off the plate and down away. It was like an automatic swing and miss, or more often than not, a weak ground ball from Dustin. Why? Because he's trying to square it up, which effectively is kind of trying to you know pull to middle that baseball. And right. you can't you can't do that with stuff off the plate away. Not unless you're Mike Trout. <laughs> off the plate away or breaking away. You're not going to pull that with any power at all. And Dustin was a pull hitter and, you know, not really hitting the ball hard to the opposite side of the field. It makes total sense that, yes, he's this big guy who, you know, has the ability to pull the baseball but not really trusting his bat speed, so trying to think pull. And throw like a good golfer, you know, Tiger Woods, I you ever go and watch this guy who has always been a powerful player on a golf course, you know, and when he was younger hitting the ball farther than everybody, and I watched the thing he did, a, a, a demo that he put on, and a lot of how he would uh, approach tee shots back when he used to hit all those fairways and shaping shots, it's, it's seeing a ball flight, but it's all about attacking either the outside or the inside of the golf ball on the tee. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a golf approach, and it makes total sense because teams were going to come into the year with a scouting report on Dustin that said, "Pitch him away." Okay, is pitch him away, and he's going to beat the ball into the dirt and hit ground balls, and you're going to throw him out mm-hmm. or swing and miss if you pitch him away on a breaking ball. And Gotro knows that, and he goes uh, and, and you revamp him this year to say, "Look, concentrate on the inside of the baseball." And that's where your barrel meets it. You're going to hit the ball hard the opposite way. When you start hitting it hard to the opposite field, now they don't know how to pitch you. And what did you see? Some of his early home runs were when pitchers made mistakes on the inside part of the plate. Now he's trusting his bat speed. he just turn on it and hit it out of the left side of the field. And so, I mean, I love it. And there's no question, no question, I mean, everybody's top of their lineup three or four spots, maybe five are going to have power are going to get hits and they're going to be on the base path. But what other teams don't have is six, seven, eight, nine, who are also all a threat. And because of Skelton, he's in that six spot or seven spot, wherever they've had him. um, you know that's why the McNamees and the Foscues are scoring so many runs and touching the plates because Skelton's stepping up there hitting the baseball. He's been a huge difference for the team, no question.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it, it makes all the sense in the world. And I I got to tell you the the Twitter folks delivered. There was yeah. some there was some fun stuff in there. We'll have to do that again.
0: Yeah, I agree. We definitely need to do that again.
1: Well, great so job uh, by you. You got any more? No, no, I think that's that's okay. all I got from from Twitter. What do you say we quickly hit Texas A and M and call it a day?
0: Let's do it because uh, it's a huge series for both teams, yeah. really. Because what A and M's coming off getting swept last week?
1: Yeah, this is their this is actually their first time being swept uh, this year. They took three L's at Ole Miss, five to four in eleven innings, thirteen to three and three to two. But there's some strong stuff on this resume. They have series wins over Vanderbilt and Auburn. They played in the Shriners Classic in the Astro stadium and won all three games. They beat Baylor, TCU, and Houston. This is a team very much fueled by pitching. They're 12th in the SEC in batting average, dead last in slugging, and 13th in on-base percentage, but they're near the top in most pitching categories. They have 10 guys that have taken double-digit innings for them, and only three of them have ERAs north of 3.5. That's pretty impressive, uh, starting pitching-wise. John Doxakis and Asa Lacy are the two best starters. Doxakis is the Friday night guy, top 25 in the nation and third in the SEC in ERA, 1.81. 77 strikeouts to 14 walks in 69 and two-thirds innings. Asa Lacy is seventh in the nation in strikeouts per nine innings at 13.92. But he's in a bit of a rough patch at the moment. He's lost all three of his last starts with an ERA uh, 5.06 over those 16 innings. Strong bullpen behind those guys, too. The one hitter worth noting is Braden Shoemake, who I'm pretty sure is in his 11th season at Texas A&M. That dude's been there forever. Uh, he's the only guy on the roster above 300, and he's the only everyday player who's slugging more than 450. He actually has 18% of Texas A&M's extra base hits, which is pretty wild when you think about it. But this is yeah. a lineup... That is far from even average in the context of the SEC, but they're still winning games by that pitching.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, it's kind of like we talked about on the last dog pile, Brett, Um, you know, as a state fan, just what I want to see is, you know, can this team go to that place on the road where it's full of opposing fans and a big atmosphere and they're loud and blowing bubbles and hooting and hollering and, Chanting their cultist chants the way they do at Texas A and M. Can you go into that atmosphere and be the same team there that you are when you're at Duty Noble? Because in the limited opportunities they've had this year in those kinds of atmospheres away from Starkville, um, they didn't play well. I guess it was you know that Arkansas series was the first one like that. Didn't didn't really play like themselves really played their worst series of the year. So that's what I want to see, is can they go out after that Arkansas experience and tonight without Ethan Small on the mound, can this team go out there, step to the plate, and put bat on ball, and be aggressive and grab momentum early in a game like they do at home? That's really what I'm looking for.
1: No, yeah, it's it's a good point. And I, I remembered you bringing that up in the last pod, so I actually asked Coach Lamonis a question about it. I was like, is there – is there any part of this team that has to prove that it can play in a hostile environment? And and he kind of uh, I, I don't mean to use this phrase because he didn't like he it wasn't antagonistic, but he kind of cast it to the side. Like that's a that's a one weekend thing. They're kind of throwing Arkansas yeah. away. Um and they've they've also uh, and chris limonis also pointed to the florida and the tennessee weekends to which i was like ah, that doesn't really pass the smell test of a hostile environment but that's neither here nor there but you kind of brought it up in yeah. in what you just said that that was really their first opportunity to play in yeah. a hostile road environment that that arkansas series and they were due a slump as jake Mangum has said they were due yeah. uh, a slump that's about right like that so when uh they get their next opportunity against Texas A&M, and if they if they have a bad weekend in College Station, then then it might be worth a, a bigger conversation about how this team plays in hostile environments, especially since they're going to Oxford the the ensuing weekend. But assuming they play better than they did in, in Fayetteville, uh, I don't I don't anticipate any any issue going forward. But it is worth monitoring because yeah. just because of the way the schedule plays out. Because if you have Two weekends in hostile environments, you play bad in both of them. Then you go to old Miss. That's that's a monkey on your back.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So um, I'm I'm watching this one this weekend with great interest. A lot of maroon on your TV screen this week, Brett. A lot of maroon, buddy. Yeah. All right, folks. Brett H- Hudson is. Um, i'm not sure that he's worn out but he should be he's done good work <laughs> good stuff and again kind of the way we started if y'all haven't gone yet over to the website just go to matt and look up uh, the blog page the hudson report right there and read the jordan westberg article about a kid from texas who wound up at mississippi state got some bad advice from a ruby tuesday waitress and <laughs> Starkle. so uh great job brad as always thank you sir He's Brett Hudson. I'm Matt Wyatt. This is Dog Pile, presented by Mississippi Land Bank and Jubilation's Cheesecake in West Point. We'll see y'all next time. See you.